Here, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to look at principles and promises of the kingdom. We'll be looking at seven of them this morning. So let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We'll backtrack for a second into chapter 4 to set the context. As you're turning there, would you pray with me one more time? Father, it is good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to be among your people. It is a wonderful blessing to have a place like this that we can gather. And one prayer that we had early this morning is that people would say, surely God is in this place. May your glory, may your presence be the most tangible thing right now. And as we get into the word of God, we know it's living and powerful. We know it's sharp and it's also comforting. And we're going to be challenged today with what you had to say, Lord, to a group of really a multitude of people who had come and heard about you, and probably many were curious about what you would have to say and how you would look and uh, what your main message might be. And this particular message, Lord, these blessings that we're going to read about are very countercultural. They're the opposite of what the world would say. But that's how your kingdom is. And there are blessings attached to every principle. There are promises attached to every principle. And we need them desperately, Lord. We need to know your heart. We want to know more about the king and more about the kingdom. So my prayer is very simple, that you would reveal yourself more to us. Show us, again, who you are. Show us about the kingdom. And help us to continue to grow in our most holy faith and to become more like you. In Christ's name I pray, all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, so today is a family Sunday. I know we got some handouts for the kids. If your kid gets really rambunctious, and it's not amens and hallelujahs to points in the sermon, the <laughs> classrooms are available to you uh, to utilize as a family. So I just want to let you know. I also want to wish my good brother, Duffy Finley, a happy birthday today. Duffy, I love you. Duffy and I uh, go back to Bible studies uh, around the year 2000. We were together when the towers went down at a Bible study at Honey's. And Duffy, uh, I want to say from my heart to yours and to your family, I love you. Thank you for being my faithful brother for two decades now, plus. And our hair has gotten a little lighter as time has gone by. Uh, but you are a beloved brother, and I love you. Happy birthday. All right, Matthew, we're going to backtrack for a second into chapter 4 to set the context. Look at verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching Matthew 4.23 in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's the title, the big uh, title for the whole book of Matthew, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. He was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him, not surprisingly, spread, notice, throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, that's the ten cities, and Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. I want you to see that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in 423, 
In 4.17, he out of the gate said, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent, notice, for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. If you hold your place in Matthew 5 and turn to Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I want you to see something in Luke chapter 4 that a brother in the prayer meeting this morning uh, reminded me of. This is a purpose statement. You don't see a lot of these in the New Testament, but take a look, Luke 4, 42. This parallels with the Matthew account. When day came, Luke 4, 42, Jesus left and went to a secluded place and the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. Luke 4, 43. But Jesus said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Note that. I came for this purpose, to preach the kingdom of God. He, uh, so he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea, back to Matthew chapter 5. So Jesus came to preach something called the kingdom of God. He's the king of the kingdom. And this does dominate much of the New Testament. It dominates the Gospels. It's mentioned in the book of Acts. And so what is the king and the kingdom? We began to give a definition of this when we opened the book of Matthew. And it's God's rule over God's people, you could say in God's place. The ancient people understood kings and kingdoms because that was pretty much every ancient government. There was a king. He ruled over a kingdom. The people of the kingdom were subject to the king. He pretty much had the authority and the power to determine laws, to make the rules, etc. And if you were going to be a citizen of the kingdom, you had to be in obedience to the king. That picture taken from, you could say, the ancient world moves over to the New Testament. And that's what Jesus paints for us about who he is, the king and the kingdom. Now, the king is about to preach a sermon. We are going to look at seven principles, seven blessed are They're called beatitudes in some sermons that you may hear, coming from the Latin beatus, where we get the idea of a beatitude. What is a beatitude? Well, it's the idea of blessed are. It's an attitude commensurate with or in keeping with the king and the kingdom. So if I asked you to close your Bible really fast and I said, hey, I want you to write down seven things of a blessed life. Because, you know, everybody's talking about blessings, right? I'm a blessed person and this is a blessing. And, and that, that term has kind of been stolen, right? And it's gone into the world. What does it mean? Even when people sneeze, what do we say? God bless you. We're invoking God. And that's not a bad thing, but we should know a little bit about the kingdom and the king. So the blessing is a beatitude. The Greek word, uh, Jesus is going to say, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. If you're interested, it's makarios in Greek. It kind of matches a Hebrew word called asrei. And the idea of this blessing, Jesus is going to say, blessed are those who mourn. Well, I don't think it would be right to say happy are those who mourn. But sometimes people want to translate the word makarios into happy. Well, makarios actually means more like inner satisfaction, inner calm, inner contentedness. The blessedness that Jesus is going to talk about is not I'm happy and giddy over everything that's going on. In fact, if I asked you to list seven blessings right now and you closed your Bible, I wonder what you might write down. Blessed are the, what might you say? The wealthy, the healthy, 
the funny, the good-looking, people who have thousands of followers on Instagram, people who are famous, people who are whatever. You could fill in the blank, powerful. But Jesus' list of blessings is going to be so opposite that. He's going to start with blessed are the poor in spirit and end the list with blessed are the persecuted. And all God's people said, what? How could you tie blessings to those things? In our particular list, it's going to be blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the peacemakers. And I'm not talking about a gun. Some of you remember the cult peacemaker. Never, never mind. That's not what Jesus is talking about. So Jesus is talking about a way that we're going to experience kingdom blessings. The king is going to show us what the kingdom's all about. The multitude had gathered, perhaps thousands of people. They heard about his fame. They heard about, he touches people and heals them. You can imagine how fast this spread and how many people traveled to come and hear him, to see what he looked like, to see what his power might be. And when Jesus, Matthew 5, 1, saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. When Jesus saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. Most scholars would say geographically, as we look at the map, he's probably more like on a hill. In the northwest part of the area of the Sea of Galilee, the hills rise steeply from the Sea of Galilee. It would make for a nice little amphitheater with the Sea of Galilee in the backdrop. And Jesus began to preach. People were around him. People were coming. But his disciples, look at the end of verse 1, came to him. That's what disciples do. They follow or they come to the Lord. Whenever we're going through something, our job is to come to him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you're interested in the Greek word for disciple, it's mathetes in Greek. It's the word math with E-T-E-S on the end, mathetes, and it means a learner or a follower of Christ, but it always has the idea of a personal connection to the one that you follow. So uh, the master-disciple relationship is what we're talking about here, and there were disciples among the crowd, and whenever people gather and listen to the word of God, there's probably a mixed multitude. I would ask you, are you just simply part of the multitude or are you a follower? Are you a disciple? Are you someone who has decided to follow Jesus? No turning back. No turning back. Notice he went up on the mountain. Some believe that mountain is mentioned here because Matthew is continuing to paint a connection between Jesus and the Exodus or the fallen footsteps of Israel. I've been laying this out for you, but remember that Jesus is retracing their fallen footsteps. And up on the mountain would remind the people of Israel of another mountain called Mount Sinai. And from that mountain, Moses gave the Torah. He gave the law. And he, he basically said, this is what God says. Jesus will say, you've heard this of old, but I say to you, so he's going to give the direct word of God. You could say the, the new covenant uh, insights, and he's up there. Maybe Mountain is mentioned to make that connection between Sinai and the Exodus, and there is Jesus. The multitudes have gathered. Later on in Matthew, we'll see that Jesus felt compassion for the multitudes because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus begins to preach the kingdom, and opening his mouth Matthew 5, verse 2, he began to teach. That's the basic word for teach there. 
And he said, here's just a thought. Whenever Jesus opens his mouth, I want to open my ears. Amen? Over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In the book of Revelation, he addresses seven churches. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. So ears to hear is for God's people. He speaks, I listen. He opens his mouth, I open my ears. That's my job, to hear what my master is saying. In today's context, when the word of God goes out, we open our ears, we open our hearts. We want to remain open to the things of God. So Jesus begins to preach, and he's seated uh, in the ancient world, and even today, there are people who are called the chair of an education department or the chair of this. And when someone sits in the chair, it's the idea of giving a formal address. So in ancient times, rabbis, when they sat, they were about to teach and everybody else stood. So let's do that right now. We're going to trade places right now. I'm going to sit and you all stand for the rest of the sermon. What? You guys got issues with that? I do it every week. Come on. For two services. Anyway, never mind. Of course, in the modern times, it's a pulpit, and you sit, and I preach. <laughs> so let's, let's listen to the word of God. Blessed, the opening uh, phrase of the sermon now, blessed are the poor in spirit. Each time you see a beatitude, you're going to see a principle, the poor in spirit, for those of you who are taking notes, and a promise, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hopefully that'll help us all track you'll see a principle and a promise. It all starts with the word blessed. Blessed is this person who is poor in spirit. Jesus said in Matthew eleven six, blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. In Matthew 13, 16, he said, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. In Matthew 16, 17, Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven. In Matthew 23, 39, I say to you from now on, you shall not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Matthew 24, 45, Jesus says, blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. If you want to live a blessed life, this is what Jesus says about it. This is not an exhaustive list of blessings, but this is one of his most famous sermons. It is the longest sermon recorded from Jesus in the New Testament, taking up Matthews 5, 6, and 7. And it is filled with so much incredible power and beauty. Blessed is the person, the idea of an inner calm. A, uh, it means to be well off. It could be translated happy, but I think best uh, as inner contentedness. This is the person who will be blessed. They will have God's uh, anointing or blessing on them. And that is, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Principle number one, does it mean to walk around going, I'm just a poor old, poor person. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. <laughs> poor, 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 poor me. Right? No. To be poor in spirit literally means that you have an idea of how you stand before God. Your family ties, your position in society, your bank account, 
nothing, none of those things can commend favor in God's sight. God wants us to humble ourselves before him and he will lift us up. In Matthew, uh, if you go over to Matthew chapter 17 for a second. Matthew chapter 17. Uh, It's actually Matthew 19. Turn to Matthew 19. I want to show you Many believe that this is the entry point into the kingdom. And here's what it says. Since this is a family Sunday, take a look. Matthew 19, 13, some children were brought to him. 19, 13 of Matthew. So that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For what? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now hold that thought and go over to Luke. Luke 18, with this in mind, being poor in spirit, Jesus is going to give us a picture of spiritual poverty here. 18:16 of Luke, Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me. Luke 18:16. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are really the same thing belongs to such as these. Luke 18, 17, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So whatever poverty of spirit means, back to Matthew chapter 5, it is paralleled with the attitude of a child. What is the attitude of a little child? We could say innocence, we say, you know, there's not a lot of baggage there. They, they simply came to Jesus gleefully just as they were. And that's how we have to come to our Lord. We have to come just as we are with a real assessment of ourselves. And I'm not saying that a real assessment of yourself should be to bag on yourself all the time. Because that's not how God sees you. You've been made in God's image. God loved you so much he sent his only son to save us. Amen. That's the value that he places on you. But I'm talking about spiritually, we have to recognize our need for God, our need for the touch of the Savior. We have to have a proper assessment of ourselves. The New English Bible puts it this way. The first beatitude, how blessed are those who know their need of God. Simply put, that's poor in spirit. You know your need of God. It's not about false humility. It's not about going around saying, I'm not worth anything. I can't do anything. It's just simply about honesty about oneself. God will honor that. D.A. Carson puts it this way. You are poor in spirit if you know there is nothing in you, not family ties, respect in the community, occupation, or so-called good works or personal holiness that is valuable enough to commend you to God. It is to see yourself as one really is, lost, hopeless, helpless, apart from Jesus Christ. Every person is spiritually destitute no matter what his education, wealth, social status, accomplishments, or religious knowledge. We come to the door of the kingdom as a beggar. The king of glory and grace opens it up to us, to all who are humble and all who will look upon him. And here's the problem. Just about every time in the crowd were a bunch of religious leaders who believed that their pedigree, their tie to Abraham, their religious fasting twice a week or giving of tithes, their power, their privilege, commended them to God. And Jesus is going to say, nope, 
God can use these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And John the Baptist put it this way, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you say that you're coming to me for baptism, then I want to see commensurate or uh, behavior that uh, is in keeping with that. Isaiah 57, 15 says it this way, thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 66, 2 puts it this way. My hand made all these things, says God. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's who God says he would, he would look to. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Psalm 51, 17, after David sinned with Bathsheba. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. According to Jesus, the promise uh, is, uh, the principle is poor in spirit. The promise is to you belongs the kingdom of heaven. And that's not just a future promise. That is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And whenever anybody sees their spiritual poverty and goes to the Lord Jesus Christ, you become spiritually wealthy in Christ. Amen? Because in Christ, you become a co-heir with all that is in the kingdom. You are co-heirs with Christ and you go from poverty to spiritual riches. I'm not talking about always material stuff. I'm talking about spiritually. Everything that Christ has, you are a co-inheritor with Christ right now. You're going to see some, some, a principle here that we need to understand. The kingdom is already, and the kingdom is also not yet. The kingdom of God is here. We are part of the kingdom. This is an expression of the kingdom of God right now. Amen? You are part of the kingdom now. How? If you're a believer, you've trusted in Christ. You've trusted in the king. The door's been opened to you. You're part of the kingdom. What are you waiting for? What am I waiting for? To realize the full consummation of the kingdom. To see new heavens and a new earth. To see the, the, the righteousness of God finally prevail all over the landscape. We don't have that yet. It's already, and it's not yet. To you is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. One writer puts it this way, the advantages of being God's people is that they can expect to accrue, that people can then be expected to accrue already in this life, even though the full consummation of their blessedness remains in the future. The advantages are now, but they shall also be then. Look at verse four. Second one, blessed are those who mourn. The word mourn is just like we would think it. It, it means sorrow. It could speak of strong or severe sorrow. When one mourns, it is certainly an expression of a broken spirit. In Genesis 23, 2, when Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. When we lose a loved one, when we lose a spouse like we have here, I know some of you sitting in this room, you have lost someone, and, and it's, for some of you, have been very recent. And what, what is the natural response to a broken world, a world where every day, you know, if we looked hard enough, we'd find things to mourn over. I'm not saying that should be our mindset, but this broken world certainly does make us mourn, doesn't it? 
Uh, I've often told families, you know, as a believer, we grieve, but we grieve with hope. We mourn with hope. We can have hopeful mourning because we know the promise, which we'll get to in a moment. How can we be blessed when we're mourning? Well, here's another principle and promise. We are blessed that when we mourn, we will be comforted. We can anticipate that mourning opens the way, says Spurgeon, to God's comfort. It anticipates what Simeon called divine consolation or what he was looking for, to be consoled by God, to to mourn in the reality that there is a future reunion coming when all things will be made new. In Revelation, it says, in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no more mourning, no more crying No more pain. The former things will have passed away. In Isaiah 61, Jesus quoting this in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Psalm 3011 puts it this way. You've turned my mourning into dancing. Amen. That's what believers can look forward to. Even in moments of grief, we always have an eye on the promise. We always have an eye on the fact that we serve the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we can comfort others with the comfort with which we've been comforted by God. I want you to hear it. He's called the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. That is our God. We live in a broken world, but our God came in to be our comforter. He sent the Holy Spirit to be our comforter, to be our helper, to always remind us that our future is secure. We've already won. Amen? Despite what goes on, no other worldview can say that. But you can say that on the authority of Christ. The principle, blessed are those who mourn the promise, you shall be comforted. Look at Verse 5, Matthew 5. Blessed are the gentle, third one of the seven. Blessed are the meek, if you have an NIV, New King James, for they shall inherit the earth. The word gentle is translated meek, and you probably have heard this before, that meekness is not weakness. In fact, the word for meek is a Greek word that means it points to a powerful horse that's been tamed, that has power that's been brought under control. There was a story about a championship boxer. His name escapes me. He was on the back of a bus, and some teenagers came up to him. Two or three of them were like, hey, and they started making fun of him and talking about his mama, which is never a good thing to do. And they didn't know he was a championship boxer. He could have laid all three of them out on the bus, but he didn't. Power under control. But when he walked off the bus, he handed them his business card. This is so-and-so championship boxer. And they're all probably like, thank you, thank you. Jesus was the ultimate expression of meekness. I am lowly and gentle in heart, and in me you will find rest for your souls. Though he was full of the power of God, he controlled that power. Meekness or gentleness is a fruit 
of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5.23, if you're taking notes, gentleness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit and so is self-control, which is the end of the fruits of the Spirit list. So when we are filled with the characteristics of the kingdom, we will be gentle. We will be meek. We won't be throwing our weight around. We won't be pushing uh, our agenda, if you will. Blessed are the gentle. An overseer is called to be gentle, 1 Timothy 3.3, and uncontentious. Peter talks about wives, and he says, Of wives, let the hidden person of your heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. This is precious in the sight of God, 1 Peter 3.4. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath or anger, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The blessed promise that we will inherit the earth. If you are the meek, we will inherit the earth. This is based upon Psalm 37, verse 9. Evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Psalm 37, 11 says, The humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Psalm 37, 29 says, The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Do you know something? The Bible teaches that what we're going to inherit after the resurrection is a new earth. We are going to live on a physical earth in new resurrected bodies. The idea of an ethereal existence forever where we float on clouds and are just in some sort of spirit form is not what the Bible teaches. We are going to be very physical. In fact, you are going to be you in the resurrection. Amen? A glorified version of you hopefully around the age of 18 to 25, would work for me. You're going to see grandma and grandpa in their prime. And are you going to know it's them? I think you'll know. I think they're going to have those, those name tags uh, in the new earth. Hello, my name is. Now you'll know each other. We'll know even as we are known. It's going to be very physical. You're asking, since today's a day of football, will there be football on the new earth? Will there be golf? I don't know. Will Brock Purdy still be the uh, Niners quarterback? He is a believer. I heard his testimony. That's pretty cool. Amen? But I don't know if God's really involved in sports because you may be praying for Jalen Hurts or Burrow or Mahomes. Uh, that has nothing really to do with the sermon. I just wanted you to know <laughs> that the new earth is going to be physical, but no more pain, no more sorrow, no more disease, no more death. And we will sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Praise the Lord. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We will inherit all the promises of God, new heavens and a new earth, wherein righteousness dwells. Blessed. Look at the next one. Are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, when we meet the king and we have a kingdom attitude, we begin to hunger for different things. What does the world hunger for? What are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? What are we going to drink? What are we going to eat? And it just replays. What are we going to wear? What is she wearing? What are they going to wear? What do you mean? What do they drive? What do you think? What do you think? What do you mean? Do you see the smoke coming out of that tailpipe of that car? You know, what's their bank account? What's the latest of the rich and famous? <laughs> or now it's this. <laughs> What do you hunger for? Jesus said, my food 
John 4.34 is to do the will of the one who sent me. When you start hungering and thirsting for righteousness, you are seeing that you're becoming more like the king. In fact, Psalm 42, 1 and 2 puts it this way, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You see, when you hunger and thirst for what is right, here's the idea of the principle. When you want to see God's will happen on the earth, when you want to see what's right and true happen in your own heart, but also happen among your nation, amen? That's why we hurt for what we see going on right now, because we know it's not right. It's not that we have an agenda against anybody who has a different view than us. We just know it's not right. And when it's not right, it's not good. You begin to hunger and thirst for the things of God, for the priorities of the king and the kingdom. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5.20. If you look down for a moment, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. What's Jesus saying there? I think he's saying simply this, that their righteousness is about the outward. What they care about is that they fast twice a week to religiously impress people, that they give of their tithes of mint and cumin, that they have power and authority and they get uh, respectful greetings in the marketplace and all of that stuff. And, And Jesus is like, no, that's not it. It's not about the world and it's not about religious boxes that you check. It's about wanting to be right with God. And have that rightness spread over a family, over a community, over a a land, over a nation. Amen? If that's your heart, then you've come to know the king. And you're getting to know the values of the kingdom. He has shown you, O man, what is good, what the Lord requires of you. He wants justice. He wants mercy. He wants what's right to occur in this land. And of course, Jesus entered into our broken world to bring the promise to us because he knows that we would fall short of it. The blessed promise. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, would you look at it? You will be satisfied. God will satisfy you. One day we will be in a kingdom according to his promise. 2 Peter 3, 14 or 13 According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We will be satisfied. But right now, since the kingdom is already and not yet, you can still be satisfied. Because when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, God will fill you. The the word here actually means to be stuffed. How many of you have made commitments at the turn of the year? All right, no, I'm not going to eat the extra taco anymore. In Jesus' name, right? And then you sit before it, and you got a little room left, and you eat the taco, and you're stuffed. And then Thanksgiving is around the corner. If you're like me, I begin to make declarations. All right, this year it will be different. I'm not going to eat the extra mashed potatoes and the extra piece of pumpkin pie. But, uh... I always have room for sweets. Anybody else out there? It doesn't matter how stuffed I am, sweets will fit in to Pastor Michael's inner parts. <laughs> anyway, I'm not talking about stuffed with regret here. Really. Like, oh, Stuffed means you'll be satisfied. 
You know, when it's just the perfect amount, when it's just the perfect day, the perfect sunset, the perfect moment, and you just like to capture it if you can and just hold on to it and bottle it, that's going to be forever. We will be satisfied. Praise God. Look at the next one. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is not a complicated one. If you're part of the kingdom, you could say that the first four were kingdom attitudes. The last three are going to be kingdom action, but they're also attitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll receive mercy. The word merciful means to be charitable. It is a generous attitude which is willing to see things from another's point of view, please hear this, and not be quick to take offense or gloat over other people's shortcomings. Are you a merciful person? Is someone free to be themselves in your presence, to make a mistake in your presence, and you don't jump on them and say, oh, look at you. Do you, want, do you give the same mercy that you expect from others? Or do you wait for someone to trip so that you can jump on them? Do you know that mercy is one of the supreme titles for God in the Bible? In the Septuagint version, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for mercy is one of the most commonly used words to describe God's character. He is slow to anger and abounding in what the Hebrew is has said, loving kindness or mercy. This is our God. He is merciful. Later, Jesus will tell a story about a king who forgave this guy a huge debt in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And the guy who was, who was forgiven this huge debt then found one of his buddies who owed him 20 bucks and said, oh, you give me my money. And he told on him and he had him thrown in prison. And the king found out about it. And he said, what are you doing? I had mercy on you. I forgave you this uncalculable debt you think of our sin before God. And you couldn't have mercy on your friend who owed you 20 bucks? Christ is the supreme example of mercy. In fact, he's called the dispenser of mercy in Hebrews 4. He gives grace and mercy to us from a throne of grace. Would to God that we would do the same. Blessed are the merciful, the promise, you'll receive mercy. Very plain. Verse 8, we're almost done. Blessed are the pure in heart, that's the principle, the promise, we will see God. The pure in heart speaks of those who are not motivated by self-love or by man's approval, but those who serve God and others with an undivided heart. David cried, create in me a clean heart, O God, Psalm 51, verse 10, after he sinned, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Many scholars believe that Jesus has echoed Psalm 24, listen to it, who may ascend your holy hill, O Lord? Who may stand in your holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, nor has he sworn deceitfully. First Timothy 1.5, Timothy wrote, or Paul wrote to Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. In 2 Timothy 2.21 and 22, Paul says this to Timothy, therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 2 Timothy 2, 21 and 22. 
You know, when I read verses like this, I, I find myself crying, oh, purify my heart, oh, Lord. And I don't think it's that complicated to know how you get a pure heart. You put th pure things into your life. If you put dirty things into your heart, dirty things are going to come out. You're going to dilute your heart. You're going to pollute your heart, I should say. Yeah, that's a good time right there for it. <laughs> the blessed promise. If you have a pure heart, what's your Bible say? They shall see God. What's our deepest desi desire as believers? To see God. To look upon him. Job put it this way. As for me, I know my Redeemer lives. Job 19, 25, 26. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I will see God. This is the beauty of knowing that he purifies my heart. He cleanses me from all sin. He purchased my redemption. And now he wants me to live in a way in keeping with that, with the king and the kingdom. Finally, the last one, the seventh one, blessed are the peacemakers, verse nine, the blessed principle and promise, they shall be called sons of God. Do you long for peace? At first service, Jesus said, you know, it seems like our world's always looking for a fight. You ever jumped on social media, seen a, maybe a controversial post by somebody and read the comments below? People are absolutely vicious on keyboards. It's given people who shouldn't have uh, platforms and power, untold platforms and power. Oh yeah, let me tell you something and let me tell you what I think about you. I've had people do that to me on social media who don't even know me. They just don't like what I represent or don't like what I preach. But I'll tell you this, Peace is the stuff of the kingdom. Ephesians 2.14 says that Jesus is our peace. Peace is what the world desperately needs. And blessed are the peacemakers. The idea of a peacemaker here, so you get the principle, is someone who reconciles estranged people, who helps people reconcile. We have a ministry. What's our ministry called? The Ministry of Reconciliation. Whenever we preach the gospel, we preach the gospel of peace. Our God is called the God of peace. We are to be peacemakers. We're not to join in the fight or in the fray. We're, try, we're to try to bring people reconciliation in our family members. We're not to stir the pot or throw stuff on the fire. Rather, we're to bring peace in a culture always looking for a fight. James puts it this way. James 3:16 through 18. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first, listen to these descriptions. You can tell that he heard his brother preach. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We're called to be peacemakers. We're called to try to connect people with the God of peace to let them know there's a peace that they can have. Psalm 34, 14 says, depart from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. Colossians 1.20 puts it this way. And through him, through Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through whom I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. Do you know how far God was willing to bring peace to us? He was willing to die on the cross. Jesus was willing to die for us. 
to bring us peace with God. So, blessed are the peacemakers, the promise. They shall be called sons of God. That means that you'll be recognized in heaven as a child of God, but other people will know. Do you know that if you look at these seven principles and promises, this is how Jesus said people would know we belong to him. Take a look. Look at verse 16. Let your light shine before men. Same sermon. In such a way that they may see your good works or your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Skip down to verse 44. Same chapter. I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Matthew 5, 45. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, are you ready? You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And all God's people said, what? <laughs> you, you preachers are always saying that there's no way we can be perfect. How can we measure up to that? Well, I think what Jesus is saying is, look, if, you, if you're going to say you belong to the king and the kingdom, this is, this is the trajectory of the goal. You're always reaching to be holy. You're not going to be perfect. We'll, we'll always fall short, but we can be growing. We can be getting, becoming more like our Lord. This is how we'll shine in a world without peace, without hope, often without civility, and they will know that we are sons and daughters of the King. Amen? We're going to have the worship team come on up, and I'm going to read a, a section here from O'Donnell's commentary. He's talking about the Beatitudes, and he's talking about Jesus. He says... A broken blessedness, a future blessedness, a selfish, selfless blessedness, that's what the Beatitudes are all about. Let me end with a simple question with a very obvious answer. Perhaps a question and answer you've never thought about before. Can you think of anyone you know who's perfectly embodied these Beatitudes? Well, you might say, every Christian I know who, who is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to some extent or another uh, embodies these Beatitudes. Yes, that's true. But it's true only to an extent, which we all know. We all know that Jesus, only Jesus embodies the Beatitudes perfectly, right? Jesus was poor in spirit, though not the way that we are due to our sin. But he did while on the earth daily depend on God the Father and the Spirit for everything. That's why he prayed. That's why he did and said nothing that was not in accordance with the Father's will. That's why in greatest humility he became a human and was crucified, Jesus mourned, didn't he? He mourned over sin. Uh, he mourned not over, over his own sin, uh, for he had none, but over our sin, the sins of the world. He wept over Jerusalem and her rejection of the good news. And wasn't our Lord the mightiest, but also the meekest man who offered a gentle yoke to all who would call him Lord? Didn't he hunger and thirst for God's righteous rule to come, which is why on the one hand he overturned the tables, and on the other hand, receive sinners into a table of fellowship. And didn't he show mercy in healing and feeding the multitudes and forgiving sins? And who was more pure in heart, undivided in his commitment to God's will? And wasn't and isn't Jesus the ultimate peacemaker who brought peace through his own outstretched arms, peace between Jew and Gentile, 
peace between God and man. And finally, who better embodied the last beatitude from the moment of his first breath to his last? More than any figure in human history, Jesus was persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Jesus embodies the blessings. And he says, you're my people. Go do the same. Do it with reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit. You won't do it perfectly. But as you do, my kingdom light will shine to others. Amen? Hey, kids, I want to tell you something. All of you younger ones in here, you did an awesome job. You... Some of you even laughed at my corny jokes, which gets you extra points in heaven, okay? But anyway, you guys did an awesome job, parents. Uh, great job. Um, it's, it's wonderful when we can do these family Sundays and enjoy uh, worshiping and learning together, amen? If you've not met Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we're not gonna dim the lights, but we're just gonna say this, looking at one another soul to soul, if you don't know Christ, if you haven't trusted his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and you haven't made him your king, and you haven't come into the kingdom, well, we talked about the requirement. Just recognize where you're at, humble yourself, and ask him to save you. You could be the youngest person in this room, the oldest one in this room. In between, it doesn't matter. It's something just like this. Jesus, I believe in who you are. I thank you for entering our broken world. Thank you for coming with me in mind. Thank you for dying and taking all the stuff you had to take for me. Thank you for resurrecting to defeat death. Thank you for the hope of new heavens and a new earth, for the resurrection, wiping our tears away, however you want to pray it. Be my Lord, be my King, be my Savior. Today could start that day for you. Maybe it's a rededication for you. Maybe you would say, these kingdom values are so far from my weekly life and my attitude. Okay, if that's the case, then pray that God will help you to become more like Jesus, to have more of his heart when you go out on a Monday or it's the middle of the week and you want to be used to extend that kingdom to others. Amen?